that a lot right oh thank god don't you i know i I do i hear it all the time i've said it before and sometimes not all the time but sometimes when i hear that if i'm out in public or something and i hear that it kind of makes me stop every now and then and and kind of wonder not aloud but wonder internally god who you know who are we talking about who are we really talking about when when you say something like that um when we say things like that and again i'm speaking for myself as well are we really acknowledging really acknowledging um that there is a god are we really acknowledging and giving him credit for whatever it is that just happened, right? What, whatever it is that, that we just experienced. And, and usually, no, that's not typically the way it works. Y'all know that. I know that as well. And when we say, oh, thank God, right? Um, we hear that all the time. It's almost, be- well, not almost, it's a part of the vernacular. It's a part of our everyday conversation. But it seems like often we hear it a lot in public. You know, we hear people talking about God kind of, sort of, you know, in a roundabout way. But for me, here's what's interesting when it comes to talking about God. See, the way that I was raised, the way that I grew up thinking, um, I was kind of taught that the Christian life was really supposed to be a private matter. That's the way I was brought up. Um, Christianity is kind of something that's between me and God and no one else. No one really is involved with that. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard this statement made. You don't talk about religion in public right? You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics. I mean, how many times have we heard that? I've said it. I also add, you know, you don't talk about SEC football either, especially after yesterday, but you don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics in public. So for me, for me growing up, when it came to things, God, when it came to things, Jesus, religion, um, I was just kind of content to file that under. This is my own personal experience. This is my private experience with God. I was content to just kind of leave it at that. And here's the best part of that. If you really kind of break that down to its rational ending, then if that is true, if it's my personal private experience with God and no one else's, well, then kind of the if-then statement is, well, I get to have my own private, personal interpretations about God and about who God is. And it sounds something like this. Maybe you've done this. Well, I think, I think God is fill in the blank, right? I think God is, and then we get to fill in the blank based on what we think, based on our impressions, our interpretations about who God is. What is God like? I think God is distant. Okay. I think God is mean. I think God is kind. I think God is aloof. I think God is compassionate. I think God is uninterested. See, I get to have my own private interpretations about who I think God is, what I think God is like, and who I think God likes. Um, Well, I feel that God usually, and again, it's a blank, and I kind of get to determine how that blank is going to be filled based on my 
opinion, my impression, my feelings about God, which all leads to a point where we say something like, well, I don't believe that God would ever. And again, it's me, what I think, deciding what God would and would not do, should and should not do. I don't believe God would ever send a person to a place called hell. I don't believe a good God would ever allow a bad thing to happen to a good person. I, I just can't accept that. I can't believe that. I refuse. I reject that idea. And all of that has a tendency to lead me to my own personal, private God. God in me. What I, the God that fits me, right? A God that I have figured out. Because it's what I think. It's what I feel. It's what I believe God should be like. But here's the problem. Think with me for a few moments. If, if all of that, you know, think about that. How would you like someone doing that to you? How would you like it if someone who has never met you, someone who knows nothing about you, someone who has never read anything about you, whenever began making those assumptions about you? Maybe they saw you from a distance a time or two, and as a result, they just kind of started filling in the blanks about who you are. You may be sitting there right now saying, well, that's happened to me. How did it make you feel? And now that person, they're talking about you with another person, and they're saying things like, well, hey, that Cole, <laughs> he is a spoiled brat. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. That Cole, he just uses other people to get what he wants. He's so manipulative. He's a backstabber. He's unfaithful, unfriendly, aloof. He's a jerk. Again, I'm not arguing. I'm just saying they don't know me. He can't read. He can't write. He can't talk right. He can't count past 10. I don't think he takes a regular shower. Have, I mean, come on now. How would that make you feel? If, and then if someone walked up and said, well, have you ever met him? Well, no. Never really met him. Have you ever talked to him? Have you ever had a conversation with him? Have you ever been around him? Have you ever been around anyone who knows him? Well, no, not really. <laughs> just kind of my impression. That's just kind of the gist, gist I get. I mean, you know, that's just what I think. And then obviously, that we, we wouldn't like that. You don't like it when it happens. But what would you think if someone did that to you? If they decided that you were a certain way, having never met once been around you, never met you, never learned anything about you, never once allowed you to tell them the truth about who you really are. Because they've already decided who you are. They decided before you ever walked in the room. They maybe decided when you walked in the room and they saw the way you looked and the way you were dressed and the way you talked and, and they just made an assumption. How accurate are they? Not very accurate. They can't defend their position because they've never really met you. They've never really talked to anybody that knows you. They know nothing about you, and yet they have decided everything about you based on their impression of you, based on their opinion of you. See, this is where I'm going with all of that. If we consider the whole God thing to be this private, personal, me and God and no one else, this whole just, you know, my opinion, my feelings, my, you know, the way my experience has been, that's what we're left with. If that's the only basis we have for that information, we're left with, this is what I think God is like. I could never believe in a God who would allow that to happen. That or that or that. I could never believe in that God. This is how I see God. So, big question. 
How accurate are we? How accurate are we with our own private version of God? Pretty good question. But see, here's the deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, like I am, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're someone that's put your faith alone and Christ alone, well, we're not called to a private faith. Instead, we're actually called as followers of Jesus to a very public faith. And here's why, because we have an advantage. You and I have this opportunity. We have this advantage. See, while we've never seen the person of Jesus, like, you know, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, knee-to-knee, we've never had that experience. He's been gone from this earth, you know, 2,000 years. What we do have are testimonies and biographies from people who did talk to him and did get to know him and did eat meals with him and, and, and spend time with him and laugh with him and cry with him and do all of the things that people who are around one another a lot get to know. We do have their testimony. We do have their perspective. Our relationship with God, with Jesus, it's not lived in secret. It's lived in front of others. It's a very serious, lifelong, and very public journey. Remember, what did Jesus say? Jesus said that we are the light. Sing it with me. This little light of mine, yeah, I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan, oh, y'all are so good, because I'm going to let it shine, yeah. Hide it under a, no, I don't even know what a bushel is. I guess a basket. I don't know. I'm going to let it shine. It's not private. It's actually supposed to be a very public thing. Our journey of following Jesus is seen by others. It's experienced to be experienced by others. And this is the big one. This is the big one. It should overflow with great love for others. Very public. Very important. And it's a journey, quite honestly, that's binary. It's a binary journey. Uh, everybody's like, oh, cut the kid's ears. He's using bad words. Binary. Real hot button word in the 21st century. But, but here's what it means. This is simply means it, our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ, it's a binary relationship. Um, here's the way C.S. Lewis described it, our relationship with Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote this a long time ago. He said, Christianity, if false, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing C.S. Lewis wrote, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. If it's true, then it should define everything that's about us. It should define every element of our life. It should define every decision that we make. If it's true, if it's false, well, it should define nothing. If true, everything. If false, nothing. There's really no middle ground. It's binary. Yes or no. True or false. Everything or nothing. Every person, every person walking on this planet, and that has ever walked on this planet, has some concept of God. Some concept. Now, I'm not saying that it's accurate. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's not just made up and man-made. But, but the, the idea you know, that deals with the concept of God, a higher power, the great spirit, however you want to put it, everyone has that. If the world finds out that you're a believer, if the world finds out that you're a follower 
of Jesus. They invariably are going to have two questions for you, and they're two questions that quite honestly do deserve an answer. Okay, Christian, believer in and follower of Jesus, question number one, what do you believe about God? What do you believe? Question number two, why do you believe it? What do you believe? And why do you believe it? So, what are we telling that person? What are we telling that person? What answer is that person going to get to that very important question? Are we giving them our ideas about God? Or are we giving them God's ideas about himself? Big difference. See, every follower of Jesus should have more than just some private thoughts about who God is, some private thoughts about how God fits into their life and what they think about God, what he would do and would not do, should do and should not do. We should know God better than that. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in a letter that he wrote to the Christ followers in the city of Ephesus, he actually said, I pray for you to have something more than just a basic, my opinion of who God is. This is the way Paul writes it. He says, asking God, this is a prayer. He says, I pray this, asking God, the glorious father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Paul wanted this for every Christ follower in Ephesus. Paul wanted this for us. I want this for us. I want this for me. So that's what we're attempting to do in this series. Very simply, that's what we're attempting to do. We want to make sure that you have more knowledge and experience with what God says about himself. Not with what I think about God, not with what you think about God, not with what culture tells us or teaches us about God, but what does God say about himself? We want to teach you in this series a huge chunk of what Stuttgart Harvest Church believes. And we want to do it as simply as we possibly can. In fact, it's interesting, everything that we teach during a calendar year, everything, whether we're talking about relationships in February, hope in April, integrity in September, or grit, we talked about in the month of October, everything that we teach, it can all be summed up with these basic statements, every bit of it. It all flows from these basic statements that we're going to have on the screen here for just a second. This is what we at Stuttgart Harvest Church understand and teach what we believe. And we believe it comes straight from Scripture. We don't make this up. It's not my opinion. This isn't Harley's opinion. We believe this comes directly from Scripture. We believe this is a snapshot, if you will. This is the essence of what we call, and we just call it that because that's what Paul called it, the good news. Let's call this the good news. This is the good news. It's going to be on your screen. You can also follow along on your listening guide, I believe. This is going to go pretty fast, so kind of hang on. This is what we believe at Stuttgart Harvest Church. We believe that in the beginning, God created everything. We believe in the beginning, God created everything. And as a part of that creation, we believe that God created man in his own image. We believe that God created man in his own image with the ability to choose. The ability to choose. See, without choice, we really would be like robots. We wouldn't have the ability to experience love. We believe we were given the ability to choose, and we believe that we made our choice. And our choice was to rebel against God, rebel against the Creator, which leads to a broken relationship with God. A relationship, a broken relationship that brought about spiritual, uh, physical death, 
where we would have to experience God's everlasting judgment as a result. We believe that God knew before we ever rejected him, before we ever rebelled against him. We believe that God knew that was going to happen. And so he had planned out the path to our redemption before he ever created the universe, before he ever created us. He already had the plan to redeem us who rebelled. God's plan of redemption, we believe, plan that he had from the very beginning, it came to us by the love of the Father through the sacrifice of his Son and by the calling of his Spirit. That's what we believe. We believe at just the right time, at just the right time, when everything was in place, when the uh, friend of mine at Park Avenue Elementary, she's a chess player, when just the right time, when the pieces were on the chessboard at just the right time, we believe that Jesus, who was God with a bod, we believe that Jesus entered the world fully God and yet still fully man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and we believe that he fulfilled the purposes of the Father. He fulfilled them so that he could then offer himself in the place of all mankind, in my place, in your place, where he took on the entire penalty of our sin with his torturous death. But we believe it didn't end there. We believe that three days later, we believe three days later that Jesus walked out of the tomb alive, witnessed by hundreds, maybe thousands, if Luke is to be trusted. Witnessed by hundreds, maybe thousands of people and we believe that this completed God's transaction of redemption with mankind. We believe that through grace alone, God can offer salvation to us, to me, to you, by our repentance, by our turning from our sin, and by having faith alone in the completed work of redemption by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. And all of it is for his glory alone. That is the good news. That, that was on the screen just a moment ago, that is the basis of everything that we teach, regardless of the series that we're in, regardless of the topic that we're talking about. That's it. It all flows from that. And every bit of it, we believe, comes from Scripture. It's not what I think. It's not what Harley thinks. It's not what some cat who lived a couple hundred years think, ago thinks. We believe that this is what God tells us about himself. And all of that good news simply means that there is a path that culminates, that leads to salvation for you and for me. There's a path. It's a path that is made up of a series of understandings probably not even aware that the path exists, probably not even aware uh, of what we're going to talk about. You've probably really never thought about the path that culminates in salvation from the perspective that we're going to present it this morning. You've probably never considered it. Even if you've been a part of the church your entire life, you may have never thought of it that, this way. But there's a path. And that path that ends in your salvation and my salvation, it looks like this. But for us to kind of get there, uh, we're going to work backwards. We're going to reverse engineer this thing. We're going to work backwards so that we can see where the path has to begin. It ends with our salvation. 
that's the ending point. That's the culmination of the path. It ends in our salvation, which simply means that I am no longer on the hook for my rebellion against God, for my sin. I'm no longer on the hook because Jesus took my punishment. Jesus took my place. So from now on, I'm with him. I'm with him from here on out. I'm with him. I'm off the hook. But see, for us to get there, for us to get to that point of salvation, there has to be forgiveness of sin. But here's the thing, for there to be forgiveness of sin, first there has to be repentance and faith. But for there to be repentance and faith, there first has to be a conviction of sin. But for there to be a conviction of sin, which then is followed by repentance of faith, which is then followed by forgiveness of sin, which is then followed by my salvation being off the hook for my sin. Well, for there to be conviction of sin, there first has to be a knowledge of sin. There has to be a knowledge. But see, before there can be a knowledge of sin, there has to be a fear of God. But for there to be a fear of God, there has to be a knowledge of God. At the core, at its core, this path that ends in your salvation, my salvation, it begins with a simple knowledge of God. It begins with the simple knowledge of God that Paul prayed for when he wrote the letter to the Christ followers in Ephesus saying, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. If we are ultimately to be saved, it all begins with a simple knowledge of God, recognizing that there is a God. But not just any God. Not just any God can save us. This is a very specific God who has revealed to us through his scriptures some of who he is, what he is about, what he is like, what he likes and what he doesn't like, who he likes. That, 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 that makes attention. Simple knowledge of God, simple, but because of sin, quite honestly, it can feel complicated. It can feel complicated. Because let's be honest. This is that thing I said that, you know, you, you've, you've thought, but you've probably never maybe said it out loud. I'm going to say it out loud. It's being recorded, so it's there forever. Sometimes we doubt, right? Come on, don't we? And we doubt every now and then when things aren't going that well. When the circumstances are pretty rough, don't we doubt from time to time? Sometimes don't we kind of get all up in our head, all up in our feelings and, you know, say things, maybe not out loud, maybe not to anybody can hear it, where we say things like, wow, I'm not sure this is real. I'm not sure this is legit. What if this is all made up and it's just in place so that people like him can have a job? I've thought it. We all have doubts, right? We all have questions. So how do we know? How do we know that there is a God, and this isn't all just made up for people like me to have a job? So here's what we want to do for the next few minutes. We kind of want to zoom out from that doubt, that doubt that I feel like we've all had at one point or another. Maybe not you. Maybe you have never felt that doubt, and that is awesome. That is amazing. That is incredible faith, and I am I'm impressed. I have. So I want to zoom out from that doubt uh, I'll kind of get from a 10,000 feet above that doubt look and just look at it from above. Let's zoom out from that doubt. Does God really exist? And let's consider a few things. There's something that brought you here today. Something. Something brought every person here today. Something has you connected to us online. There's something. 
There's some belief that is inside of you. There's some hope that is inside of you that day. Or at the very least, somebody promised you lunch. And that's why you're here, which that's the case. I get it. But something brought you here. Isn't that true? There's something inside of us that says there's a power out there we can't see. We just know it's there. I, I can't explain it. I can't put my finger on it. I, I, I just know there's something out there bigger than me that I can't explain. We just know there's something out there greater than us, greater than this creation. Even when we doubt deep down, we know that there is a God because every culture that has ever existed, every culture around the world has that same feeling. Every culture that has ever existed or exists today, they just have that undeniable feeling that there's something bigger out there, something greater than all of us. Paul actually wrote about it. Paul said, yeah, that feeling that you feel that sometimes you just can't explain, it's not an accident. God put it there. Paul said this in a letter that he wrote to the Christ followers in Rome. Paul says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth, the sky, uh, through everything that God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. They see his eternal power and his divine nature. Paul says, God made it obvious. God made it obvious. This creation is no accident. There's something out there that's bigger than us. There's some type of an ultimate force, this powerful force. So, according to Paul, they have no excuse for not knowing God. Our hearts tell us that God is there. It's just intuitive. Every culture in the world has a concept of God. Every culture. If you believe in the unseen supernatural, if you believe in anything connected to the spiritual realm, if you believe in things that you can't see, if you believe in the paranormal, if you subscribe to anything that goes beyond the physical universe, you believe in a God that is a part of that world that's beyond the physical that we can see, beyond what we normally experience. You believe that. And that's built into us. God put it there. We just know there's more out there. But still, hey, Again, we doubt. I get it. We doubt. But the very things that we can see, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that exists, the very things that we can see, we know it hasn't always been around. We just know. We just know that. I mean, every single day we can see things winding down, right? I can. We, we can see things uh, in various stages of decay. We can see things getting older, crumbling, eventually falling apart. We doubt. So let's zoom out from that doubt again. Let's kind of take that 10,000 foot above view. We just know that everything we see, it screams a higher power because we know it's on a clock. You know, we, we know there's a countdown. There's a timer. It's not new anymore. See, at some point, we just know that everything started. We just know. We know that somehow, some way, some force began it. Now, we can have a lot of conversations about what that force was, but we all agree that this is not infinite. It hasn't always been, right? We just know it had a beginning. Even when we doubt deep down, we know there is a God because since the universe started at some point, some force started it. 
In the year 429 BC, the uh, Athenian philosopher Plato, years later, his student Aristotle in 384 BC, some 400 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, they asked many of the same questions that we ask today. They knew something couldn't come from nothing. So if something can't come from nothing, they asked the question, what was the cause? What was the event? What was the thing? It was the beginning of a lot of our discovery. They, they knew, again, 400 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, they knew that for every action, there has to be a reaction. And for every action, there actually has to be a preceding action. They knew that, as we do today. They knew that nothing can start from nothing. Everything has a beginning. Something starts it. Again, Paul gets this, as he usually does. Paul gets this. Paul understood the Athenians' questions, their, their, their musings, their wonderings. He understood that. Luke tells us, he writes an account of a conversation that Paul had with the Athenians about 20 or so years after Jesus. This is what Luke wrote. I'm just going to paraphrase this. Paul rolls into Athens, Greece, and he looks around and he sees all of the images and all of the altars and all of the idols, and he says to the Athenians, you are very religious people. You know there's something out there bigger than you. You just don't have it all figured out yet. And then he looks over and he says, in fact, right there, the Athenians had an altar to an unknown god. Like, we don't get them all. There's one running around out there that we don't have an answer for. We're just going to, that's him unknown. And Paul tells them, I'm going to take the un off of unknown. And he begins telling the Athenians about the God that you've been worshiping, and you didn't even know who he was. And Paul says this in verse 24, Luke tells us that Paul says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. That's the one right there. Paul says, every, every fine height being every finite thing, it, it has a cause. It doesn't just cause itself. You know that. Since, Paul says, and Luke records, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. In other words, an infinite God cannot dwell in the finite things that you've built. And human hands cannot serve his needs because he has no need. There's something bigger out there, more powerful, and something stronger caused it started it. He himself, Paul says, gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. See, even when we doubt deep down, we know that God exists because, well, the universe started at some point. Something started it. Deep down, we, we know that's true. But it even goes beyond that. Behind everything that has been started, everything, not just creation. We're, take, it, take it down to today, everything that you see. Behind everything that has been started, we look at it, and it looks custom-made, right? It looks very custom-made. It, it looks specifically designed for a very specific task. I mean, a baby doesn't start itself. Just begin, it's just not the way it works. Something has to start it. No, we're not going there. Everybody relax. Take a deep breath. Mom, we're good. Something starts the entire process. 
I totally understand the doubt. I really do. I have it myself. But again, let's, let's zoom out from the doubt. If the universe started, and obviously it did, because here we are, some force started it. Even when we doubt, deep down, we know there's a God because design is evident. There has to be a designer. Where design is evident, there must be a designer. Nothing organizes itself. Not in any, any other element of our life, it doesn't. We know this in our own life. Nothing organizes itself. Your garage doesn't clean itself, obviously. Someone has to clean it. When you're driving down the road and you look over and you see a bridge, you just know it has a very specific design. It didn't design itself. It didn't just pop up there. You look at it and you know because it has design. It was designed for a specific task. And that means that someone designed it. The bridge didn't just happen over time. Even when we doubt deep down, we know that there is a God if design is evident. And if design is evident, there must be a designer. Again, back to what Paul wrote to the Romans. He says, it, he says guys, uh, for ever since the world was created, people, they looked at the earth, they looked at the sky, they looked at everything about creation, and, and, and through everything that God made, they could see his invisible qualities, his eternal powers, his divine nature. So there's no excuse for them not knowing that there is a God. It's the reason you can walk outside in the evening, in the fall, look to the west, to the setting sun. It's the reason you just see there's such design in nature. There's a specific purpose because there's a specific design, and there's a specific design because there had to be a designer. And it's interesting because the more science discovers, and I want to be very clear, I am very pro-science. This is not anti-science. This is very pro-science because the more science discovers, the more we see the brilliant, intricate, and complicated design. We're not going the other way. We're realizing more and more and more all the way down to the cellular level just how incredible the design actually is. So then should we not consider the designer? We easily say no one even bats an eye or pushes back when someone makes this statement. Mother Nature did this. No one bats an eye. Then why is it so difficult to think that Father God did it? Deep down inside, we know. When design is evident, there's got to be a designer. Consider this. Um, if anyone, you think about in your mind an, an axe, an old rusty axe. Just to, again, just a, an analogy here. Think about an axe. Maybe you got an old axe that your grandparents had, or grandpa had. I, I have one. But think about an old rusty axe. Consider the shape of the axe. Consider the, the sharp edge of the axe. Consider the hammer end on, you know, one end. If it's a single-sided axe, you got a hammer end on, and the wooden handle. Every part of that axe, every single part of it can be found in nature. Every single part of it. The parts that make up the steel, they're all found in the ground. The wooden handle is a tree. It's not that special. It's not that impressive, right? It's just every part of it can be found in the natural universe. But if we were to take an axe and we were to go in the back here, and we were going to the middle of the pumpkin patch, dig a hole, put the axe in there, cover it up, walk away. A thousand years from now, someone were to walk up and were to happen upon that axe that we buried a thousand years earlier. They were to dig it up. They were to look at it. Would they think, wow, look what just happened to happen in the ground? 
Mother Nature, over billions and billions of years, and again, I'm not anti-science at all, but over billions of years, they organized all of the parts that, that, that make the iron and heated and pressurized to form the shape, the, the wood, all of Of course not. That's not what they would think, and that's, obviously that's not what they would think. Not what I would think. Not what you would think, because that's not what we think in any other area of life. Can design be an accident? Or is it more likely that there must be a designer? What's more likely? Deep down, we know that this was all designed by a designer. And it was designed for a very specific purpose. I find it really, to me, one of the more interesting elements of what we're talking about this morning. I find it very telling that throughout all of the sciences, and I don't care which one you jump into, you can, go, you can talk about anything. Throughout all of the sciences, we accept this truth. That where design is evidence, there must be a designer. We accept it. We accept this truth in engineering, right? We accept this truth in every element of our physical world. Every element that you understand from your physical world, the experience that you have every day, you accept that. That when design is evident, there has to be a designer. We say that this applies to every area of life science except for one. Not in a very, very specific area of biology, nor in cosmology. We, we just accept it in every other element of our life that where design is evident, there must be a designer. But for whatever reason, we have pushed back in this one small area, these two small areas. See, those designs were accidents. Those designs were just random order that was created as a result of an unimaginable chaos. But we don't accept that explanation in any other field. We don't. We refuse it. We, we laugh at it. Study of archaeology. Someone connected to archaeology finds an arrowhead. What do they do? They begin studying the designer, right? They begin studying the culture. Who were they? When did they live? What were they about? Why did they do it this way? Why is this one different than that one? What changed? Did the tools change? We don't ex accept this explanation in engineering. When you see a bridge, a building, when you see a pyramid, immediately, what do you begin asking? Who did this? How did they do it? Why did they do it? Because deep down inside, we know if design is evident, there has to be a designer. But still, doubts. I get it. Doubts. So let's zoom out. Let's do that again. Think about it like this. How do you know basic right and wrong? How do you know right and wrong? How do you know good versus bad? How do you know moral versus immoral? We did an entire series on this in the month of September. What is it that's inside of you that tells you that it was wrong for the Greeks and for the Romans to take an unwanted baby outside of the city, uh, city limits and just leave it there to die of exposure? That's what it was called, exposure. Happened a lot. What is it inside of you that just knows that's wrong? Shouldn't do that. Why is it we have hospitals for sick people? Nursing homes for older people who need extra help, extra care. Why? I mean, if we really believed in survival of the fittest, shouldn't we let them die? No. Of course not. Man, were, I kind of thought I'd get something out of that. Everybody's like, well, you know, when you think about it. <laughs> but no, of course not. You know you shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. You just know there's something inside of you that says that's wrong. Somehow... Something about right and wrong has been placed inside of you and inside of me. 
Again, Paul's got the answer. Paul's really good at this. Paul writes to the Romans again, a, a, a chapter later from what we just read earlier, Paul says this, he says, even Gentiles, non-Jews, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, uh, the 613 Old Covenant commandments is what he's referring to here. Even the Gentiles who don't have the law, they show that they know his law because they just instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They just obey it. See, none of us starts from scratch. None of us gets to begin our story with a completely blank page. And the reason is because God has already placed something inside of you. He's already placed something inside of me. Something that is profound has been placed on our hearts that we can't explain. It's just there. Paul then puts his point on display by writing this. He says, speaking of the Gentiles again, he says, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. This isn't the sacrificial law that Paul is referring to here. Paul is referring to God's law of just living around one another. That the Gentiles demonstrate, we demonstrate without having any access to his rules, laws, and expectations. We have it. We know it because we instinctively obey it. And then he goes on, he says, their conscience and their thoughts either accuse them when they do something wrong, pat them on the back when they do something right. It's there. It's unexplainable. Even when we doubt, deep down, we know there is a God when we feel his nudge to do the right thing. It's there. We don't always do it. I don't. But it's there. When you do something and you know you ain't supposed to do it, there's a nudge. We feel that, right? The very fact that we have an internal compass, right versus wrong, moral versus immoral, the, 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 the fact that that, ex, that, that that exists, something bigger than us, from outside of us, placed that inside of us, that screams a designer. But still, we doubt. I get it. So let's zoom out. When we look around the entire world, if you look around the entire world, the history of cultures, the history of civilizations, you clearly see that every culture that has ever existed, as we've already said, they have some view of God. They have some view of a higher power. They have some view of a great spirit. They have some view of something that is bigger than them. Every single culture has this. And consider the vast number of people that have been given peace in the middle of a storm. Peace when they should have been freaking out. Peace when there was absolutely no peace to be had, and yet somehow they had it. Who gave that to them? See, there's something inside of us. Even for many people who would say, there, there is no God. This is all just a bunch of happenstance, chance. This is all order that came from chaos. There's, even for that person, there's something inside of us deep down when we have no other human option, when there's no other earthly option. There's something inside of us that causes us to cry out to God. There's something inside of us that says, I got to look somewhere. That's where I'm going to go. What is that? I mean, this is true of all levels of society, all cultures, all civilizations in the history, recorded history anyway, of humanity. What is that? All levels of society, all over the world, different parts of the globe. Is that just mass mental illness? 
See, even when we doubt deep down, we know there is a God because most of the world calls out to a God in some way. The human experience with the supernatural tells us God is out there. So very quickly, let's look at these again. They're going to be on your screen. We know that there is a God because every culture around the world feels that there is something out there that is bigger than us and is greater than us. We can know that there is a God because, well, since the universe started at some point, something started it. It hasn't always existed. We know that there is a God because if design is evident, there must be a designer. We know that there is a God when we feel his nudge. Right versus wrong. We know there's a God because most of the world calls out to a God in some way. When we doubt there is a God, hey, sure, I'm not going to stand up here and act like you can't dismiss some of these. Some of those right there, leave those on the screen, uh, McKinley, for a moment. I'm not going to say that you might possibly be able to sit or watch and, and, and push back on some of these. That's okay. I, I understand. I mean, some of you sitting in here right now, some of you watching online, if you're listening later on during the recording, you might have rolled your eyes over the course of the last 30, 40 minutes when I mentioned a few of those things. You might have just rolled your eyes and said, oh, gosh, yeah, that again. That's okay. You can't dismiss them all. One or two, maybe. You can't dismiss them all. You can't rationalize them all. You can't dismiss all of those things and still have a logical basis for the purpose of life. Still have a logical basis for living in general. You can. You might be able to refute one or two of these things. But when you take them all together, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming evidence that God is out there. Oh, thank God. So, God exists. If God exists. What's he like? What does he like? Who does he like? Better question, who does he not like? Buckle up. That's where we're going in the next three weeks. Those are questions that we're going to attempt to answer over the course of the next few weeks. What is God like? So this week, here's our next step. We would encourage you to review these notes. If, if you've been taking notes on the listening guide, again, if you want to keep the answers, you got to save it. Review these notes. Look over them. Try sharing your heart with God this week. Maybe you're someone that was sitting there and say, I still don't know. Talk to him. He'll reveal himself. Talk to him. And try this. We want you to sign up for a daily email or a daily text. It's just for this series. You will not be getting these the rest of your life. I promise. This is just for this November series. You can do it by going to uh, the connection card, the worship guide, or I believe you can, I believe there's a link to do it on the listening guide as well. Sign up for a daily text or a daily email. All this is going to be is a prayer and a verse. That's it. Sign up for it. Because, hey, we all doubt sometimes. We all do. But we don't have to stay there. Look at how God has proven that he is there. Be reminded of that this week. And then come back next week. Maybe, just maybe, you too will leave here saying, oh, thank God. Let's pray.
God, I believe that the evidence that you were there is undeniable. Because there are so many things that I just can't explain otherwise. God, I believe that you have given us evidence of your, your power. I believe that you've given it to us through your creation, through the intricate design, through the incredible ways that things work. And I believe every single day we're discovering more and more and more just how intricate and just how obvious the design really is. I got no problem saying Mother Nature did it. But for whatever reason, we struggle with Father God. So God, I ask as we move forward the rest of this worship experience and into the week, God, just help everybody to have the courage to have a real conversation with you this week. Open up with those doubts. Reveal, God, that you're there. Give us that base understanding of you. The beginning of the path that eventually leads in our salvation. Thank you for Jesus.